All right. Good morning, familia. So nice to have you here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, uh, and I serve as one of the pastors here in the church, and I want to welcome you all to Witten Bible Church, whether you worship with us in person or you worship with us online. Um, I think that you, you are choosing a great season to be part of the church. I think that it's always a great season to be part of the church. But um, right now I'm talking about, in specific I'm talking about, because we are at the beginning of this new series that's going to take us about 70 weeks to finish. So, you know, stick around. Um, and, and it's about, it's all about the Gospel of Matthew. It's going through different sections of the Gospel of Matthew. And we have called this series The King and His Kingdom. And the way we've done it, uh, to, we've set this up, is we have divided the Gospel of Matthew into 12 different sections. Every section has a different uh, set of sermons. And for every section, you will find an icon or a logo or an image or a symbol that goes along with each section. Today, we're still in section number one. We are doing week three, and that's why we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. And the section we read today is part of the Christmas story. Which is so interest, interesting because what we read today is part of the dark side of the Christmas story. Like, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of a Christmas carol that talks about King Herod killing a bunch of babies. I don't think that nobody will write that song because it will not make money. You can play that song at the mall while you're doing your Christmas shopping, right? But it is part of the Christmas story. It is the dark side of the Christmas story. It actually, it gives you a glimpse of what Jesus' life will look like the rest of his life, all the way he go, when he goes to the cross. But if there's one thing that I want you to see in the Bible as we dig into this section, is that our God is a God that is always working amid darkness. That our God is always a God that is working and bringing beauty in the midst of brokenness. And that's exactly how we're going to look at this passage today. Even though it's a dark passage, I want you to see the beauty in it. Because in it, we see three things about Jesus. Number one, that Jesus is the new and better king. That Jesus brings the new and better kingdom. And that Jesus is the new and better everything. Can you say new and better? Can you say Jesus is the new and better everything? Wow, that was, that was awful. Some people started here beforehand. You guys were trying to catch up. Let's try that again. Jesus is the new and better king. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you, guys. All right, let's go with the first point. Jesus is the new and better king. If you were here last week or you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew... Right at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we hear this story of the Magi coming to visit Jesus, uh, visit uh, King Herod, and as they are looking for Jesus, they introduce Jesus as the king of the Jews. You guys remember that? Um, and it's interesting because uh, the Magi are telling this king, listen how awkward this thing had to be. They're telling this king that there's a new king in town. If you are King Herod, how do you take that? Right, if you are the king at that time, how would you take when someone says, hey, by the way, there's a baby, and that's the real king? Now, we don't know much from the scripture about King Herod, but we know much about him from history. So, for example, we know that this king um, was willing to kill family members to stay in power. 
We know about this king that he had issues with anger so and so much that he killed one of his wives. We know that this man was so hungry for power and position and title and all of that stuff that was willing to pe- kill people in, in uh, you could say, politicians, and he was also willing to kill religious people. So as you can tell, King Herod had major issues with control, power, and dominion, and anything and anyone that would be a threat to that needed to be executed, according to him. Now, Herod's logic is super simple, and I think that we would understand why is it that he feels this way. This is the way he's processing things as he hears about Jesus. If Jesus is king, then that means that I'm not. That's the logical reason. If Jesus is king, that means that there cannot be two kings in town. It's either him or me. If Jesus is king, then that means that, I'll be, that I will experience at one point dethronement. It means that I will have to submit to him. And it means that eventually I will not get to live the, my life the way I want to uh, if I have to submit to that king. It makes sense, right? Well, this is part of the reason why then Herod becomes a crazy person and he does what he does best. Anything that is a threat to his authority, power, and control ought to be eliminated. And that's why in verse uh, 13, an angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph and he says, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, he doesn't know where the child is, the text says, and he, know, he doesn't know who the child is, so he figures that the way to fix the problem was to kill any kid that would be like Jesus. So he makes his own calculation, and he says, well, this is what I heard, so anybody that is under age, under two years of age, should be killed. And that's why verse 16 says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. I mean, that's a crazy thing to do. Now, what we know from that from that time, in that location, and the size of the towns, that meant that he probably killed about 30 to 40 kids. You know, populations in those places were somewhere between 200 and 1,000 people. So some people seem to believe that he killed about 20 to 30 boys, 30 to 40 boys. Now, someone might say, well, it wasn't that much. That's not the point. The point was that this man was so cruel so hungry for power and control and influence and title, so hungry to keep his sovereignty that he was willing to do what nobody else would do. Once again, his logic is, if Jesus is king, then I'm not. His logic is, if Jesus is king, that means that I'm going to lose my throne. That means that if Jesus is king, I must submit to him. And if Jesus is king, I could no longer live my life however I want to live it. That makes sense. How about if I tell you that Herod understood something about Jesus that even Christians need to remember today? The irony of this text is that you got a pagan king, a cruel king, teaching Christians how they ought to be Christians. So last week, if you were here, uh, Pastor Brent uh, uh, mentioned some of this uh, right at the end of his sermon 
And as he's saying it, I remember something that John Stott said in his book, Basic Christianity. And this is what he says. If you read the Bible, you will see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to Jesus, to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or they were absolutely smitten by him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. Notice that John Stott, Pastor Brent last week also said it, there is no neutral reaction to Jesus. Either you truly love him or you are afraid of him and run from him, or if you perceive that he's a threat to you, the attitude of the heart is to eliminate him. Why? Because if Jesus is king, I'm not. How about if I tell you, church, that even if you are a believer today, you have a little hurt in your heart? How about if I tell you, church, that the stuff that he struggled with is very similar to the things that we struggle with. How about if I tell you that whenever we sin, purposely sin, is because we are choosing to take Jesus out of the throne of our hearts and we put ourselves in the throne of our hearts. How about if I tell you that this is part of what it means to be a sinful human being every time Jesus says something about him, his claims, his rule, his authority, there is a fight within, even if you're a Christian. So listen, I don't think that anybody would say that, but there's a tendency for many of us, including the pastor, when someone says something that I don't like, I never say it out loud, but I guarantee you that I think about it. Nobody tells me what to do. Have you ever said that? At least to yourself. Now, if you said it to somebody else, that means that you're a lost case. But that's a reality of who we are. That's what it means to be a sinful human being. As much as we want to love the Lord and want to submit to him, there is this fight within every time Jesus says something about who he is and what he wants from us. Now, if you don't think that that's you, I'm going to try to convince you that that is true. Because unless you recognize that you struggle with that, you will never embrace Jesus as king. So I'm going to give you only three statements, three things that Jesus said about himself, and I want you to use those statements and use them as a self-assessment. Now, listen, nobody else, is, uh, nobody else can see. Only the Lord can see. Nobody, you're not going to make a public confession. You're not going to raise your hand. Just ask the question, all right? But to prep one another, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and ask the question. Are you ready? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so now you respond, no, 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 are you ready? Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> All right, come back here. Three statements. Listen up, listen to what Jesus says. This is only something that a king can say. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know what that means? That there's no truth outside of Jesus, therefore, whatever you think, if you think that you're objective, you are only objective if that objectivity is in alignment to the truth of Jesus. That there's no life outside of Jesus. That he is the only way for salvation. I mean, that's confronting. It's not Jesus plus you. It's Jesus alone. Second one. That was easy, by the way. Second one. 
Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You know what that means? You know what deny means in the Greek? Deny. It means that you deny, you surrender yourself to him from Monday through Sunday, 24 hours in a row, 365 days a year until you die. It's not deny yourself Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, take a break on Thursday. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say uh, deny yourself only in certain areas of your life. No, deny yourself in everything you are and everything you have. Be willing to suffer for the gospel and follow Jesus. Don't you feel that's radical enough? Jesus then messes around with an idol in our culture, our family. So he says, anyone who loves their parents or their kids more than me is not worthy of me. How many, how many of you guys feel uncomfortable with that one? Three people, the rest of you guys are lying. <laughs> you know why Jesus says that? This is one of the commentators, what one of the commentators says. He is claiming to have absolute, unconditional authority over you. And he is demanding absolute, unconditional alliance or commitment to him. He does not leave any room for negotiation. He doesn't say, give me this part and this part is yours. He says, everything you are, everything you have belongs to me. If I am your king, everything you are and everything you have belong to me. That's why the Prosperity Gospel Churches never preach this message. Because Jesus calls us as king to surrender ourselves to him completely. This is what is super interesting. This is not the only people that say this about Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 34, Simeon is blessing Jesus, and this is the thing he says to Mary. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. In verse 35, so that their thoughts, um, so that they, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You know what that means? That as soon as you hear Jesus as king, something happens in your heart. For some will be a blessing, for some people will be in a struggle. This is part of the reason why I think that modern Christianity and the secular age struggle with Jesus so much. See, we are the product of, what, of something that Char, uh, Charles Taylor calls um, uh, expressive individualism, the age of authenticity. In his book, The Secular Age, he makes the argument that the way we see ourselves today has been affected by so many different things, including romanticism in the 18th century, in which the whole movement was to tell us that what matters most is what we think of ourselves and what we feel ourselves to be. And his, his whole argument is that in the secular age, there is this tendency to reject anything that is, anything that is imposed from outside of us, Anything that is, quote-unquote, imposed by society, anything that is imposed by generations, uh, anything that is imposed by religion, and anything that is imposed by political authority. And he says, this is the description of what it means to be a secular person. And I really believe that many Christians function that way. 
part of the struggle is because we really, deep down inside, think that nobody should tell us what we should be and what we should do. And I'm pleading with you as a church. And I'm asking you to invite Jesus into every area of your life. And I want you to see that we can never say to Jesus, you know, you are king, but you don't have jurisdiction over this area in my life. There's no jurisdictions for Jesus as king. He's king over your money. Hello. He is king over your lifestyle. He is king over your time. He is king over your relationships. He is king over your politics. He is king over your theology. He is king over every area you think is not as important. My conviction is that if Jesus is not king in those areas in which you don't consider to be as important, he's not king over the areas that are very, very important. There's no little things in the kingdom of God. If Jesus is not king over your life, then your opinions are king over your life. If Jesus is not king over your life, your desires is king over your life. If Jesus is not king over your life, then your feelings are king over your life. If Jesus is not king, you don't get Jesus. I don't get Jesus. I think there's a reason why the Gospel of Matthew talks about Jesus as king so much at the beginning of the Gospel. My conviction, personal conviction, is that if we don't get Jesus as king right, we won't be able to surrender those areas in our life that will require a lot of dying. Let me put it this way. If we don't see Jesus as king in those tiny little things in our secrets of our hearts, you won't be able to surrender your life to him when it requires a radical transformation. I think that this is one of the things that I had that I learned from my mom early, early on in my Christian walk. Actually, this is one of the reasons why I think I became a Christian. So, so let me give you a, a quick intro into my mother. Um, we, we all come from, we come from a Christian family. We grew up in Christianity our entire lives. But my mom, from age 10 all the way to age 40-something, walked away from Jesus. And around 80, 45 maybe, 44, 45, she gets this awakening, a spiritual awakening from the Lord. And her life was transformed, radically transformed, like from one weekend to the other. It was like, who is this lady? Like that. And I, and I got to see, I'm not a Christian at that point, and I got to see how the Lord was asking her to surrender things here and there. Little things like reading the Bible, little things like uh, doing the things that she's supposed to do, little things like the way she worked, little things like not saying the stuff that she was not supposed to, little things about she having a conversation with us saying how she was going to manage the money because now she needs to give money to church. And uh, it's little things like waking up in the morning seeking for the Lord and then going out at night and seeking for the Lord. And I remember pre-Jesus, going to my mom and saying, Mom, I know you're religious and all, but this is too much, don't you think? Jesus wants you to have fun, don't you think? Two years after that spiritual awakening, the Lord calls my mom to drop it all. To drop her career as a teacher, to drop her beautiful apartment in Oak Park, 
to drop her lifestyle, to a certain degree to drop her family and become a missionary, working in a place with no money, no salary, crazy amount of hours, lose freedom, sacrifice her car, sacrifice everything. And my mom says, I'll go. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Did you know that that's one of the things that the Lord used to help me understand that Jesus is not just a savior, but a king. And I'm convinced that if my mom wouldn't be that radical, I wouldn't be preaching this sermon today. Thank you, mom. Thank you, mom. <laughs> Actually, thank you, Jesus, for my mom. Don't you think that that's what the Lord is calling you to do? Either Jesus is king or he's nothing. And it doesn't mean that you don't have to explore Christianity, but it means that you have to realize that God calls you to see him as king. Because he is a good king. He is a king that loves. He is a king that cares. He is a king that protects. He is a king that guides. He is a king of mercy. He is a king of grace, but he's a king that is king. He demands submission to him. That's why Jesus is the new and better king. If he's king, then we're not. Not only we see that in text, but we also see that Jesus brings a new and better kingdom. Point number two. So one of the things that we experience when we start to see Jesus as king is that everything in life, gradually and slowly, you start to see everything from his perspective. It's almost, wear, it's almost like wearing a new set of glasses. Have you ever sunglasses? If your glasses are yellow, everything looks yellow. If your glasses are red, everything looks red. If your glasses are dark, everything looks dark. Whatever set of glasses you have on determines how you interpret life. And I want to argue, and I need you to pay attention here, that every single one of us have already a set of glasses through which we interpret life and how we read the scriptures. There is no one, listen up church, there is no one that is 100% objective, even though you think that you are objective. Because you have been conditioned by your personal experiences, by your history, by your family, by your traditions, by the things you have learned. Everyone has a set of glasses. But if Jesus is king, then we have to learn how to interpret life and make a distinction between my own personal set of glasses and the glasses that Jesus gives me to interpret life. And how I function in life. One of the areas that gets affected by this is not only how you view God, not only how you view yourself, not only how you view others, but you view actually what it means to be kingdom people. So let me ask you a question. What kind of people does Jesus save? And what kind of people Jesus uses. So the text tells us that Herod died. And the Lord speaks to Joseph again. 
And he tells him to go to the land of Israel. And as he's going over there, he realizes that Herod's son now is in power. That history tells us that he was worse than his father. And the text tells us that he was afraid. And once again, through a dream, God speaks to Joseph and tells them this in verse 23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he will be called a Nazarene. Now, the reason why I'm highlighting this, this name, Nazareth of Nazarene, is because if you are familiar with the Christmas story, you think of Nazareth and automatically something warm grows in here. Ah, oh, Nazareth. But in the first century, for that people and that time, Nazareth was not like, ah, nah, it was a terrible place to be from. Actually, Nazareth will be one of those places, and this is coming from one of the commentators, that only the nobodies lived there. Nazareth will be one place that nobody want to be, would like to live there. Actually, another commentator, R.T. France, says this. That when someone would call you Nazarene, it was, it was almost like if they wanted to insult you or be offensive to you. Listen, I don't know how you feel about the place where you were born. But if I say, if someone asks you, um, oh, actually, no, let me, let me make my point here. You guys remember the conversation between Philip and, and Nathaniel? Philip tells Nathaniel, oh, this is John chapter 1, verse 45. He says this, he's super excited, and he says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. But look at how he responds, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? So, uh, listen, imagine that you're talking about me with somebody, and you say, well, Hannibal is Colombian, and the person says, can anything good come out of Colombia? You know how I feel? It's like, What? That's Nazareth. This is the place God chose to have the king of the Jews live. This is the place that will be identified as the place where Jesus, the king of kings, come from. The question is this. Why would God do that? Why would God choose such a place for Jesus, the king of the Jews. So here's the answer to the best of my abilities. God wanted to show us that his kingdom was going to be completely different to the way the world sees a kingdom. God wanted to show that God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, will be an upside-down kingdom. God wanted to show us that he always works, not through the elite, but through the nobodies. God wanted to show that God always works, not necessarily through the high social status people, but through the unknown. God wanted to show us that any of us would actually qualify to be part of the kingdom. Isn't that what we see throughout the scripture? Isn't this the reason why God chose the little brother instead of the older brother? In ancient times, in biblical times, Old Testament times, the older brother was the one that was always chosen to be the first. And yet, throughout the scripture, we see God working through Abel and not Cain. 
through Isaac and not Ishmael, through Jacob and not Esau, through David and not his brothers, through Joseph and not his brothers. Isn't this the reason why we see the kind of woman that God chose to elevate and use? Women that were rejected by society and many of them rejected by their husbands. He chose Sarah, not Hagar. He chose Leah, not Rachel. He chose women like Rebecca, Hannah, and Elizabeth that were considered a lower social class because they couldn't have babies. Isn't that how the Lord works through the Israelites? Listen, the, to be part of the Israelites will be one of those things that you will be like, man, I really don't want to be part of that group. Listen, whenever you feel that, whenever you feel that you're so down, that you have almost, that you almost lose hope, all you have to do is all you have to do, grab any page from the Old Testament, read two pages, and you will see how the Israelites were unfaithful, dysfunctional, rebellious, and stubborn. And I guarantee you that you will feel so good about yourself. <laughs> Listen up, church. And that's the group of people God chooses where Jesus will come from. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom in which God works through broken people. This is the same reason why 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were uh, when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential by, not many of you guys uh, were, were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So if you see yourself as broken, needy, and flawed, that is great news, church. You qualify. And God uses people like you. And God uses people like me. See, Jesus comes and brings a new and better kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. God chooses the ones that know that are weak because the ones that are weak know that the Lord has to work in us and has to work through us. And if that is true, there's an implication here for us as a church. If God works through weakness, if God works through broken people, and if God comes for the least of this, as a church, we cannot allow ever, ever the sin of partiality. You know what that means? When we treat people different according to their accomplishments, what they have or don't have, how much they're recognized or their titles. We treat, we treat all people with value and honor because they have all been created in the image of God and because our God is not a God of partiality. Can you see how Jesus comes, not just as a new and better king, but he comes to bring a new and better kingdom? Right from the beginning of the gospel, we see that. Now, if you notice, I continue to use new and better. New and better, new and better, new and better. Now, somebody might be asking the question, man, this immigrant guy, doesn't he know another phrase? 
No, I'm doing that on purpose. And yes, I don't know another phrase. <laughs> Point number three. Jesus comes to bring, or he is a new and better everything. Now, the reason why I'm using this phrase is because that's, that's what I understand the Gospel of Matthew is doing in this section. Did you notice the word fulfilled three times in the text? So, for example, in verse 15, it says that Jesus was taken uh, to Egypt to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. In verse 17, Jesus, Matthew compares the coming of Jesus to something that Jeremiah has said to Rachel when he has lost her children. And then in verse 17 says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And then once again, Matthew, at the end of Matthew, the section which is read in verse 23, he says that Jesus comes from this town, Nazareth, so it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, plural. Now, there's a scholar that talks a lot about this. His name is Patrick Schreiner. He's a scholar for Midwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary, I believe. And he, and he explains that the word fulfilled could be translated as complete, fills up, or satisfied, meaning that in Jesus, the whole Bible is completed. The whole Bible is filled up. The whole Bible is satisfied. Everything that is started from the book of Genesis. This is what he means. That the entire Bible is about Jesus. So in Matthew 15, verse 15, for example, when compares uh, Jesus, he says, he's actually telling us that Jesus is, is, is being compared to Moses, Egypt, and Exodus. In verse 15 alone. In verse 17, Jesus is compared to whatever happened to Jeremiah, and he presents Jesus as, uh, as the one that brings hope. In verse 23, he's comparing Jesus as the one that all the prophets pointed to. That's the reason why he used that Jesus is the new and better everything. Everything you see from the book of Genesis all the way to the New Testament is all about Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus. Now, if you want to capture that in your head, let me read something. Something I wrote, and then something that I modified from Tim Keller, and then something that I modified from John Calvin. Actually, my, John Calvin, and then uh, Tim Keller. Just listen up. Jesus is the new and better Moses because he escaped from Egypt. Jesus is the new and better David, the true king of kings. Jesus is the new and better Israel who was also called God's son, which in the Old Testament, that's how the Israelites were called. Jesus is the new and better Exodus who delivered people from slavery. Jesus is the new and better hope that comes to bring hope for the, for the weeping. That's what I wrote. Let me modify what John Calvin said in 1535. Jesus is the new and better Isaac, the beloved son uh, of the father who was offered as a sacrifice. Jesus is the better Jacob, the watchful shepherd who has such a great care for the sheep. Jesus is the, the new and better Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers. Jesus is the new and better Moses, writing his law on the tables and the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. Jesus is the better, the new and better faithful Captain Joshua, who leads us into the promised land. Jesus is the new and better King David, bringing his hand, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. Jesus is the new and better King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. Jesus is the, the new and better Samson, who by his death had destroyed all his enemies. Now, a modification of something that Tim Keller said. 
Jesus is the new and better Adam who passed through the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the new and better Abel whose blood cries out for our forgiveness, not our condemnation. Jesus is the new and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave his comfort to create a new people of God. Jesus is the new and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and God and mediates the new covenant. Jesus is the new and better rock of Moses who is struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the new and better Job who truly innocent suffer who then intercedes for and save his stupid friends. He said it, I didn't say it. Jesus is the new and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the new and better Jonah, who was cast, uh, cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. If Jesus is the new and better everything, and if Jesus is the new and better everything, then in him we find satisfaction, completeness, peace, joy, fulfillment, security, significance, stability, and rest. Jesus is the better and new everything. So here's a question. Why wouldn't you trust him as a king? It's illogical not to trust him. Why wouldn't you want to be part of his kingdom? It would be illogical not to do it. I pray that the Lord makes us kingdom people. And we learn to surrender every sphere of our lives to Jesus, our King. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Beautiful Savior, Savior, we recognize today that we have sinned. That we don't allow you to be King in every sphere of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit... By the conviction that the Spirit brings, you help us become kingdom people that trust your kingship. We want to do that, Lord, because that's how we're going to give you glory the best, but also because it's the best for us and the best for the people you have, you have given us. Help us, Lord, surrender every sphere of our lives. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...